When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast about a Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you once again for listening. We've got three parts for you today. In part one, we'll review our dramatic win over Crotone on the weekend. In part two, we'll check in on the other teams at the top of the table and how they performed. And in part three, we'll preview our massive, massive game against Juventus on Wednesday. So let's start with the Crotone match, which was a dramatic 4-3 victory on goals by Lorenzo Insigne, Victor Osman, Dries Mertens, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo. With 10 matches to play, we've now scored more goals this season than we did all of last season. Crotone's goals came from their usual goal scorers. Simi scored a doppietta and Junior Macias scored the other. This was a tale of two halves, but not in the usual sense of the cliché. That expression is typically used to describe a match in which the first half is very different from the second. That was true too, but I'm using the expression to distinguish between the quality of Napoli's attacking half and that of our defending half. We looked very strong in the attack, particularly in the first half, but we looked horrible at the back. As is often the case with this team, the goals we conceded were due to errors made by Napoli players, though I must say Crotone did well to finish their chances too. As a result, we were forced to empty our bench, which is something I'm sure Gattuso did not want to do with the Juve match only four days after this one. We'll cover all of that in this review, and we'll revisit our three keys to the match, but first, let's take a look at the starting lineups. Serse Cosmi made four changes compared to our predicted 11. He lined up in his usual 3-5-2 with Alex Cordaz in goal. The back three consisted of Sebastiano Luperto, Vladimir Golomic, and Kofi Gigi, who started over Lisandro Magalan. Salvatore Molina started over Arkaduj Ratza as the left wing back, and Andrea Rispoli started as the right wing back over Pedro Pereira. 
Ahmed Ben Ali started in the center of the midfield with Nicolo Zanellato to his left and Junior Macias to his right, and Adam Una started over Samuel Di Carmine paired with Simi up top. Gennaro Gattuso made one change compared to our predicted 11 and five changes compared to the squad he fielded against Roma before the international break. Once again, he lined up in a 4-2-3-1. Alex Meret started in goal with David Ospina picking up a minor hand injury during the international break. With Kalidou Koulibaly suspended and Amir Rachmani still recovering from his muscle injury, Nikola Maximovic and Kostas Manolas started at centre-back. Mario Rui started at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo returned from his suspension to play at right-back over El Cid Hisai. Timoy Bakayoko started over the injured Diego Deme in the double pivot alongside Fabian Ruiz. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Matteo Politano started again on the right wing. Dries Mertens dropped from the striker position into the Trecortista, so Piotr Zielinski started on the bench. Finally, Victor Osman got his first start since playing the full 90 minutes against Atalanta on February 21st. So those were the starting lineups, next let's get to our three keys to the match. I didn't do my usual preview so I've extracted these from my discussion with Gaetano and Gianluca on our bonus episode. The first key to the match was that we needed to press high and keep the ball in the Crotone half. I'm going to say that we failed in this regard, we had most of the ball but we did not pin Crotone in their half at all. This was a match where we should have been in complete control but really we were not. We had a two-goal lead twice in this match, and we allowed the last-place team in the league to score three goals on us. I'll come back to the errors that led to the goals, but even beyond the goals, Crotone had a number of chances on the counterattack. As good as we were in the attack, I thought we were also a little bit careless. We gave Crotone way too much space to run through the midfield. Credit to Cosme for starting Adam Unas over Di Carmine. Unas caused a lot of problems with his pace, particularly when our fullbacks got forward. The likes of Timoy Bakayoko and Fabian Ruiz simply do not have the pace to keep up with a player like Unas, and obviously neither do Maximovic or Manolas. Our second key to the match was not to concede a penalty. Now, we did achieve that goal, however, the motivation for that key was that Simi had scored six times from the penalty spot this season and that seemed to be the most likely way that we were going to concede a goal to Crotone. Obviously, there was another way that Crotone would score, which was if we gifted them opportunities like we did on Saturday. Simi didn't score from the spot, but he still found the back of the goal twice. Those were his team-leading 14th and 15th goals, adding to what is already the best Serie A season for a Nigerian footballer. This season, Simi passed Andrea De Florio as the club's all-time top scorer. De Florio finished his career with 54 goals, while Simi is now at 61. Our final key to the match was that we needed to score early so we could rest our key players. Again, I think I have to call this one a push. We definitely scored early with goals from Insigne and Osimhen in the opening quarter of the match. Just like our second key though, there was an implicit assumption with this key that we would not concede any goals, which apparently was optimistic. With Simi scoring early in the second half, we couldn't take off any of our regular starters. Then with Macias tying the game, not only could we not take out key players like Fabian, Insigne, Mertens, and Osimhen, at least not until very late in the match, but we also had to bring reinforcements in off the bench like Zielinski and Lozano. Gattuso was forced to use Lozano to seek out the winning goal, which was risky because he was on a suspension. Fortunately, he stayed out of the official's book, otherwise we would have lost him for the Juve match. So in the end, the only players who were able to rest were Koulibaly who was suspended and Hisai who remained on the bench. So we achieved one of our keys to the match and we pushed on the other two, which is quite fitting with this result. 
Now, I mentioned the contrast between our attack and our defense in this match. Let's start with the negative and then we'll close with the positives. If we didn't already know it, it was abundantly clear in this match that our backline is nowhere near the same quality when Koulibaly is not in the squad. I mentioned the lack of pace when our fullbacks got caught high. That's something Koulibaly offers that few centre-backs in all of Europe offer, let alone in Serie A. Manolas looked like he was really labouring out there. He may not be the most athletic defender, certainly not as athletic as Koulibaly, but he's usually pretty quick. That makes me wonder whether he's fully recovered from his ankle injury. We know how long Dries Mertens took to get back from his. This was also his first start in two months, so you can appreciate why his form was off. That said, Manolas still should have done better on the first two goals that we conceded. He wasn't the only one at fault, though at least not on the first goal. I think Bakayoko and Di Lorenzo deserved their share of the blame as well. Bakayoko conceded possession in a dangerous area. We've been hating on Bakayoko for most of the season, but aside from this play, I think he actually played a very good game. You could argue there was a foul by Benali there, but I thought Bakayoko went to ground a little bit too easily. Then you had Di Lorenzo play a weak clearance off Manolas where he probably could have booted the ball to safety. Then like Di Lorenzo, Manolas tried to be too cute with his clearance which went straight to Benali. Then Di Lorenzo left his position to chase the ball and even Maksimovic got caught ball watching a little bit which is why Simi was so wide open. You do have to give Benali credit though for having the vision and the composure to pick out Simi with that delicate little chip and you have to give Simi credit for the quality finish but there was really a comedy of errors that led to that goal. The second Crotone goal was simply a case of Manolas getting beat. That happens sometimes. Again, for all of our defensive vulnerabilities, you can't take anything away from Crotone's two stars here. Messias played an excellent header to Simi, who timed his run perfectly. The striker also knows how to use that big frame of his to protect the ball without fouling, and he is a lethal finisher. So Manolas has definitely had better days. Does that mean I think we should sell him? Perhaps. He's been rather underwhelming since he joined. I think a lot of that has to do with the lack of consistency we've had at center back as far as personnel goes. Koulibaly missed most of last season due to injury and this season we've had a bit of a revolving door at center back. For me, Manolas has not demonstrated that he could be the number one center back if we sold Koulibaly. That means it would take a monster offer or perhaps a request to leave from Koulibaly for us to sell the Senegal captain. I personally don't think Koulibaly wants to leave. I've mentioned this before. If he was so determined to play for a big club to win a Champions League, I think he would have asked to leave a long time ago. So to sell Koulibaly, it would have to be for a large enough sum that would allow us to sign another quality center back to be the number one. Manolas cannot be the go-to guy and Rachmani may get there at some point, but he's not quite there yet, especially because he's barely played this season. I think Rachmani could potentially overtake Manolas as our second center back, so in that sense, I'm okay with selling Manolas. That said, I don't think we will simply for financial reasons. We paid around 36 million euros for Manolas. I think given his play over the last two seasons and given the financial burden caused by COVID, we'd be lucky to get half of that price for Manolas right now. I'd rather keep him for another year, by then, most of his contract will have been amortized, so even if we sold him for a quarter of the price we paid for him, we'd still break even, at least in accounting terms. And don't forget, we still need to bring in a fourth center back to replace Maksimovic, who will walk for free at the end of the season. So my approach would be to sign a young center back with a high upside this summer, give him a year to develop, then sell Manolas next summer and use that money to buy another young center back to be the fourth option. 
Speaking of Maximovich, his nightmare of a season continued, which is too bad because he was really good last season. He was at fault on the third goal. He was just too casual in receiving the throw-in. His first touch was too heavy, and I think he underestimated the pace of Junior Macias. Macias had plenty of work to do after he dispossessed Maximovich, but this guy is a phenomenal player. For those who haven't watched much of Crotona this season, this performance was not a one-off. He's been playing at this level all season. I completely agree with Cersei Kozmi's comments after the match where he said that Macias can play for any team in Serie A, not just the lower teams, but any team. It's hard to believe that only three seasons ago he was playing in Serie D. He helped AC Gozzano achieve promotion to Serie C, then he joined Crotone last season and helped them achieve promotion to Serie A. So those were the negatives. I tweeted after the match that this was the worst way we could have possibly won. Like I said, with our second key to the match, Gattuso was forced to bring on Lozano, Elmas, and Zielinski, and he wasn't able to rest Insignia, Osman, or Fabian. However, upon further reflection, I think a low-scoring game with a late winner probably would have been worse. At least we were able to score four goals, which will surely give our attacking players confidence heading into the Juve game. That was the positive to take away from this match. We'll start with our Capitano Lorenzo Insigne. He collected his Player of the Month award for the month of March before the start of this match. He carried that form through the World Cup qualifiers and into the start of April. I thought he was the man of the match in this one. He scored the first goal and assisted the second, which I'll get to in a second. But beyond the goal contributions, Insigne was a workhorse once again. You can see, even when he's tired, he just forces his body to keep running. It's actually quite remarkable. Only Fabian and Benali covered more ground than Insigne, and no player sprinted as much as Insigne did. He was also involving his teammates, particularly with crosses to the back post. Now, Insigne was a bit fortunate on his goal, which took two deflections on its way in, but when things are going your way, you tend to get these bounces, and when things are not going your way, like during Insigne's mini drought earlier in the season, you tend not to. I'm inclined to think that the two even out. Insigne now has 14 goals on the season, which is only 4 shy of his best season in the top flight. He scored 18 goals in the 2016-17 campaign. Moments before the goal, commentator David Ferrini pointed out that Insigne had scored the opening goal of a match 8 times this season, so this was the ninth time. Insigne also now has 5 assists on the season, which is only 3 shy of the 8 assists he got in that same 2016-17 campaign. And what an assist it was. If you didn't happen to see the goal, you have to check it out. Insigne played a given goal with Fabian at the top of the box. Fabian's return pass was a looping chip over the top towards the back post. By the way, Fabian had an excellent match once again. He's really grown into that defensive midfield role, which puts us in a really good position with respect to his contract. Depending on who the new manager is, we can either keep Fabian or we can sell him for a much higher price than we would have garnered at the start of this season. But back to Insigne, he volleyed the Fabian pass with a scissor kick across the face of the goal. Now that may have been a shot, but in any event, Insigne put the ball in a dangerous place and Osiman was there to tap it in. As easy as it may have been, this was a huge goal for the young Nigerian. Like I said, he was making his first start since late February. In our last bonus episode, we talked about some of the positive takeaways from the international break, and one of them was that Victor's production with Nigeria could give him some much-needed confidence in Serie A. I thought he looked very confident in this match. Some of the plays he was making, only a player with his size and pace could make. He made a tackle and run early in the first half that was similar to the play that Macias made on his 
his goal, Benali underestimated Osimhen's pace and reach, and before you knew it, Osimhen was running downhill towards the goal. It took a brilliant slide tackle from Golomic to stop the attack. Golomic was really good for Crotone at the back, particularly in the first half. Osimhen made an interception on an Unas pass in the first half where he just outleaped the Crotone player and won the ball back. He also came close to scoring a second after Matteo Politano played a lovely through ball into the area and again, few players in the league have the pace Osimhen has to even get to that ball. And then after Cordaz made the save on Osimhen, he cut it back to Mertens but he hit the bar. Finally, Osman started the play on the third goal. He made a good clean tackle to dispossess Benali before passing to Fabian at the edge of the area. Fabian was fouled, which led to the free kick for Dries Mertens. Mertens was the other player who stood out in that attack. For the second match in a row, he scored from a set piece, both from a similar location on the pitch. Against Roma, he went around the wall, and in this match, he went up and over it. I must admit, I was a bit surprised to see Mertens start over Zielinski in the 10th spot but it worked out really well. It seems the reports were true that he did not suffer a serious injury playing for Belgium, which of course is great news, and it allowed Zielinski to get some rest ahead of the Juve game. I'll close with a few quick words on Giovanni Di Lorenzo, who scored the winner of course. I think when Di Lorenzo is rested, he is one of, if not the best, right back in all of Serie A. Other than the errors that I mentioned on the first goal, he was very sound defensively, and of course, he has plenty to offer in the attack. I've said this before, but I think from an attacking standpoint, he's more effective playing with Politano because it gives him the option to overlap. That doesn't mean Di Lorenzo isn't good when Lozano starts. In fact, it means he can play a bit deeper, which means he's less likely to get caught upfield, which has been a bit of an issue for us this season. He obviously showed his versatility scoring the game winner with his left and I love that he ran straight to his fellow fullback LCT Sai after the goal. If Di Lorenzo plays like that for the balance of the season, I think he could sneak into Roberto Mancini's Euro squad. Alessandro Florenzi is clearly the starting right back but I think the backup right back role is still up for grabs. I like Manuel Lazzari but I don't think he's as good of a defender as Di Lorenzo is. He certainly doesn't have the size. The trade-off with Lazzari is the pace that he offers, but with Federico Chiesa playing on the right wing, I don't think it's as essential that the right back have pace too. Finally, Di Lorenzo is accustomed to playing in the 4-3-3, whereas Lazzari plays as a wing back in Lazio's 3-5-2. So it wasn't pretty, but in the end, we got the three points, which is all that matters. We've now collected five wins and a draw in our last six and pushed ourselves back into the race for top four. We also got some help this round. I'll cover all of that in part two. In part 2, we'll recap some of the matches of our main competitors. Heading into this round, we were sitting in 5th place on 53 points. Inter were top of the table with 65 points, 6 points clear of Milan. 
and Inter still had a game in hand. Atalanta were 4 points back of Milan on 55 points tied with Juventus, so Atalanta and Juve were 2 points ahead of us. Roma were 3 points behind us after we beat them on the previous match day, and Lazio rounded out the top 7 on 49 points, which was 4 points behind us. Milan and Sampdoria kicked off the round in the early match. This one finished 1-1 on goals from Fabio Quagliarella and Jens Peterhauga. Ismail Benacer returned to the starting 11 for the first time since February 13th. Stefano Pioli also started Alexis Salamakers at right back with Davide Calabria still hurt, though that experiment did not really work. Pioli would replace Salamakers with Pierre Kalulu at the break. That was because Sampdoria was clearly the better side in the first half. They got off to a very positive start. They were looking very confident, getting forward in numbers, and had the only two quality chances for either side in the first half. The first came only six minutes into the match. Manolo Gabbiadini fired on target from the right side of the area, but Donnarumma did well to push the shot over the bar. The second chance came around the midway point of the half from a set piece. Antonio Candreva played an in-swinging cross from the right wing. Benacer was marking Morten Thorsby, but for some reason he pulled off, which left the Norwegian with an open header. Thorsby got a strong head on the ball, so even though it was a little too central, the shot still required an excellent reaction save from Donnarumma. Not only did the big Italian keeper stop the shot, but he also pushed the ball to safety. Meanwhile, Milan did not create a whole lot in attack. When it looked like they could be dangerous on the counter, they would slow down the play and effectively kill their own attack. Milan had a couple of free kicks in dangerous areas, but Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Hakan Chalonoglu crashed their shots into the Sampdoria wall. Sampdoria did get away with one just before the break. Tommaso Augello got on the wrong side of Ibrahimovic. They made contact and the Swede went to ground, but the foul was not given. It was one of those tackles where a foul is probably called anywhere else on the pitch, but not in the area. Milan started the second half more positively, but Claudio Ranieri's side is well-trained and kept Milan at bay. Then the match finally got the goal that it needed. Milan were playing out of the back when Teo Hernandez played the ball back into the path of Quagliarella. The Napolitan striker pounced on the opportunity and chipped over a helpless Donnarumma, who was off his line to support his back line. You cannot give Quagliarella gifts like that even at 38 years of age. He still has the ability to score from distance. That put Quagliarella into double digits for the ninth time in his Serie A career, and the way the first half went, you can't say that Sampdoria didn't deserve the goal. Moments later, the match took another turn. In the 59th minute, Adrian Silva picked up a second yellow. He was only playing because Alban Ekdal picked up a hamstring injury playing for Sweden on international duty. For all that Sampdoria did well in the first half, they did also pick up three yellow cards, so a second yellow was definitely a risk. Silva's first yellow was for a professional foul to stop a Teo Hernandez counterattack, and the second foul was for a late tackle on Samu Castillejo. Both managers made the changes you would expect after that. Ranieri took out Gabbiadini and brought in Norwegian midfielder Christopher Askelsen to help defend for the final half hour. Meanwhile, Pioli emptied his bench, bringing in Sandro Tonali, Antti Rebic, and Jens Petter Hauge to seek out an equalizer. The way the game was going, it didn't seem like that goal was going to come, but it did in the 87th minute. Hauge finished a lovely buildup from Ibrahimovic and Kessi with Milan's only second shot on target. The Norwegian received Kessie's pass on the left side of the area, cut back to his preferred right boot, and calmly finished past Emil Audero. Milan finally started to play with some urgency after the goal and nearly took the lead only a minute later. Hakan fired on target from outside of the area, but Audero is an excellent keeper and made a fine save to protect the draw. 
Then in the 93rd minute, Ibrahimovic laid off to Kessie around the penalty spot. Kessie appeared to have a free shot, but Bartosz Berzinski made a fantastic slide tackle and got just enough of the ball to deflect the shot off the upright end out. That was Milan's final chance of the match, so Milan's struggles in 2021 continued. Later in the day, Torino and Juventus squared off in the Derby della Mole. Weston McKennie, Paolo Dybala, and Artur were all kept out of the Juventus squad for this match after the police shut down a small dinner party McKennie hosted in violation of Italian lockdown laws. Artur was injured anyways, and this would have been Dybala's first game back after being out for months due to injury, so really this just meant that Juve would have less depth for this match. Nonetheless, Juventus got off to a bright start. They nearly opened the scoring only two minutes into the match after Federico Chiesa played Alvaro Morata through at the near post, but Salvatore Sirigu made a sliding save. Only a few minutes later, Chiesa himself had an excellent chance after Cuadrado played a cross to Ronaldo at the back post. Ronaldo got up really high to head the ball back down to Chiesa, but the winger skied his shot over the bar. Keza got another chance about a minute later and again it was Ronaldo who played him through. This time Keza hit the target with his left but the shot was straight at Sirigu who made the save. That was all in the opening 5 minutes of the match. Torino settled down after that and got a couple of chances of their own. First Christian Ansaldi dribbled past Cuadrado and Dejan Kulusevski before laying off to Rolando Mandragora at the top of the box but his shot narrowly missed the far post. Only a couple of minutes later Alexandro conceded the ball to Rincon in the Juve end of the pitch. Rincon squared to Bellotti who appeared to be fouled by Matthias De Ligt on the play but the penalty wasn't given. It was hard to tell whether De Ligt got the ball first, but that doesn't actually matter. Even if you get the ball first, if you take out the player, it is still a foul. I thought this was similar to the Augello tackle on Ibrahimovic in the Milan game, in the sense that anywhere else on the pitch a foul would have been called, but in the area it was not. Just moments later, Keza opened the scoring after playing a give-and-go with Morata. This was a great play by Keza, though he just kept his run going and then finished through the legs of Sirigu. Credit to Torino though, they played really well after conceding and found the equalizer in the 27th minute. Another Napolitan player, Mandragora, started the play with a low hard shot from well outside the area. Chesney made the save but didn't control the rebound. Antonio Sanabria was waiting on the doorstep to head the ball in. Back the other way, Morata had a couple of chances to put Juve back on top just before the break. First he had Cuadrado's cross on target but Sirigu got down and pushed the ball to safety. Then Sandro played a low ball to Morata at the near post and it just needed a touch but it was barely out of Morata's reach and Sirigu smothered the pass. Immediately after the restart Torino went ahead and when I say immediately I mean only 13 seconds after the whistle blew, Klusevsky passed the ball straight into the path of Sanabria. The Licht gave Sanabria a little too much space and the Paraguayans somehow beat Chesney at the near post. There were some doubts as to whether Chesney would even start this match after an outbreak of COVID with the Poland national team and Buffon was suspended for blasphemy, so Carlo Pinsolio would have been the next man up. With the goals that the normally very reliable Chesney conceded, you almost wonder if Pinsolio could have possibly done better. Juve responded with a couple of quick chances in the 51st minute, Keza let fly from distance, it deflected off Alessandro Bongiorno and just missed the goal. Then about a minute later, Kulusevski swung the ball into the area for Ronaldo who got a free header and hit the target, but somehow Sirigu got a hand on the ball. Despite all of the goals, both goalkeepers made some big saves in the final quarter of the match. In the 70th minute, Ronaldo won another header, this time in between Bongiorno and Gleason Bremer. 
but he couldn't keep it down. Moments before that, Juan Cuadrado got away with a pretty reckless tackle on Simone Verde, who I thought had an excellent match as well. Cuadrado easily could have been shown a straight red, but he only got a yellow. I suspect that was because the replay showed there was actually very little contact, even though that doesn't really matter. Just like Sirigu, Chesney made a couple of big saves in the dying minutes of the match. First, he managed to get a finger on Sanabria's header to deny the forward from scoring a historic tripleta. Then in the 94th minute, Chesney made an excellent save on Daniela Baselli's free kick that was heading towards the top corner. That was the final chance of the match, so just like Milan did to open the day, Juve dropped points on the penultimate match of the day as well. The final match of the round was Bologna against Inter, but I'm not going to review that one. Even though it's mathematically possible for us to catch Inter, I no longer view them as our competition. They are 12 points clear of us with 10 matches to play, but with the form they are in, I do not see us, or anyone else for that matter, catching them. For what it's worth, Inter won 1-0 on a goal from Romelu Lukaku. With that goal, he became only the 7th player in Inter history to score 20 plus goals in back-to-back seasons, and that was Inter's ninth consecutive victory in Serie A. Meanwhile, Atalanta beat Udinese 3-2 in the rain in Udine. Luis Muriel and Duvan Zapata scored for Atalanta, while Roberto Pereira and Jens Strieger Larsen scored for Udinese. Udinese set up to defend as they always do, but that's not an easy proposition against the attacking force that is Atalanta. Atalanta patiently broke down the Udinese defense, and it wasn't long before they got their goal. Robin Gosens, Luis Muriel, and Matteo Piscina worked the ball around beautifully to set up the shot for Muriel. Juan Musso should have done better on the shot, though the pitch was pretty slick in the rain and it got through his legs. Musso had an up and down match. He made a big save on Ruslan Malinowski's shot that seemed destined for the bottom corner. However, just before the break, Muriel doubled Atalanta's lead and he made it look far too easy. Malinowski played a gorgeous diagonal ball to the Colombian who calmly controlled the ball and dribbled around Musso before casually rolling the ball across the line. That was Muriel's 18th goal of the season. Now, he has started in 6 of Atalanta's last 9 games, so I don't know if he still qualifies as a super sub. Mind you, he only played 45 minutes in this one. Remarkably, Udinese responded with a goal of their own only 2 minutes later. Udinese hadn't created much in attack to that point. In fact, they didn't even get their first corner kick until the half-hour mark. Nahuel Molina made a great play to get past Gozins, who slipped and fell on the right wing. Molina squared to Pereira at the top of the box, and he hit the ball first time to beat Golini at the bottom corner. Like Muriel, with that goal, Pereira has scored in both fixtures this season between these clubs. That didn't seem to phase Atalanta, though they started the second half strong, with Piscina testing Musso only 5 minutes in. Duvan Zapata added the third in the 61st minute after another lovely through ball by Malinowski. Credit to Udinese, though, they didn't go down without a fight. Jens Strieger Larsen came off the bench and scored his first goal of the season. Once again, Molina did really well on the right wing to assist on the goal. That certainly made the final 20 minutes of the match interesting, but neither side scored again after that. So Atalanta just keep on rolling. They now have 7 wins in their last 8 matches. The one match they did not win was a 1-0 defeat at the hands of Inter. Moving on, Sassuolo drew Roma 2-2. Sassuolo were without a number of key players for this match. Domenico Berardi, Ciccio Caputo, and Gregoire Defrel were all out injured. Meanwhile, Sassuolo admirably left Manuel Locatelli and Gianmarco Ferrari out of the squad as a precaution after the COVID outbreak with the Italian national team. 
But as we know all too well, Sassuolo are capable of getting results even without key players in the squad. In fact, Sassuolo played much better in this match than they did against us. Both of these teams like to hold the ball, but it was Sassuolo who dominated the play early on. Roma could hardly get a look in. Their makeshift front three of Hamid Traore, Jeremy Boga, and Gianmarco Raspadori were looking very lively. Rick Karsdorp, who was deputizing as a center half with Roger Ibanez suspended, was really struggling to mark Boga. Maxime Lopez and Filip Juricic played really well too. Lopez nearly opened the scoring in the 12th minute after a lovely through ball from Raspadori, who at the age of 21 was wearing the captain's armband. Lopez kept his composure with Leonardo Spinazzola racing back, but his shot struck the upright and stayed out. Roma had their chances as well, largely because of the play of Carlos Perez. He had an early shot from a dangerous area blocked by Marlon. Then he forced a save from Andrea Consigli after volleying Spinazzola's cross down into the ground. Finally, just past the midway point of the first half, Perez made a great move in the area to get past Marlon, who fouled him on the play. With Jordan Bertu on the bench having just returned from injury, Lorenzo Pellegrini took the penalty and converted it against his former club and slightly against the run of play. Roma nearly doubled their lead moments later, but Consigli made a very good save after Borja Mayoral timed his run perfectly and took the ball down brilliantly, but just ran out of space. It's hard to imagine a more open game, yet there were chances abound in the second half. Sassuolo carved Roma open in the 54th minute after some quick passes between Juricic and Raspadori. Traore put the ball on a platter for Boga, but he could not keep his shot down. Raspadori nearly equalized a few minutes later after Gianluca Mancini played a wayward pass back. The young captain cut in to shake off Brian Cristante, but somehow Paolo Lopez got a finger on the shot. But on the ensuing corner kick, Sassuolo got a well-deserved equalizer. Juricic flicked on Raspadori's corner to the near post and Traore got in front of Spinazzola to chest the ball in. Roma responded really well, creating multiple chances, but Consigli was up to the task. First, he stopped El Shirawi point-blank, then he made a sharp save on Pellegrini's free kick that took a deflection off Traore in the wall. On the ensuing corner, he made another good save on El Shirawi, but he wasn't able to stop Bruno Perez's shot a few minutes later. Spinazzola took advantage of a failed clearance by Jeremy Toyan before cutting the ball back into the danger area. The ball rolled through to Perez and he smashed his shot into the side netting to put Roma back ahead. Roberto De Zerbi was not going to let this match slip away though. In the 84th minute, he replaced Vlad Kirikas with Federico Peluso and Filip Juricic with Brian O'Day and they immediately made an impact. Only a minute after coming on, O'Day played a lovely give and go with another substitute, Lucas Haraslin, before scoring to Raspadori in the area. The young striker cushioned the pass and tucked his shot from the edge of the 6-yard box into the bottom corner to level the score at 2. That was the final goal of what was a really entertaining match. I'm sure Romanisti were very disappointed with this result, especially with so many Sassuolo players missing, but full credit to the Zerbi and to Sassuolo, who were nonetheless very impressive. Finally, Lazio beat Spezia, but just barely. Manuel Lazzari and Felipe Caicedo scored the goals for Lazio, while another Napolitan, Daniela Verde, scored for Spezia. I felt Lazio were quite fortunate to get this result. I absolutely love the way Spezia play. This was not the first time we've seen them give a top club a tough time. They were defending very aggressively, which was the perfect style to play against a counter-attacking team like Lazio. The Bianco Celesti could not seem to develop any rhythm, and the reason was because every time Lazio got the ball, Spezia pressed and forced a turnover. 
Lazio did get a chance early in the match. Yaukan Correa played a lovely through ball to Chiro Immobile on the left side of the box. Immobile played a gorgeous return ball into space. He knew exactly where Correa would be and Correa completely bottled the shot. Immobile didn't score but I actually thought he played quite well in this match. He could have had a couple of assists had Correa been more clinical. I'll come back to that in just a second. Other than that chance, Spezia were the better side in the first half. Emmanuel Giassi had a powerful shot stopped by Pepe Reina, and just before the break, Giulio Maggiore got a free header in front of the goal, but just missed the far post. Lazio looked much better in the second half. Correa had a couple of chances early in the half, but like I said, he wasn't able to find the back of the goal. The first was a shot from a sharp angle that Yerwin Zut did well to keep out. Then five minutes later, Correa had Lazio's best chance of the match to that point. Immobile played a gorgeous through ball to Correa, and if the forward squared the ball to Francesco Acerbi of all people, Lazio would have taken the lead. Instead, he took the shot, which is I suppose what you would expect from a striker, and Zut made the save. Simone Inzaghi was forced to bring in Luis Alberto off the bench. The Spaniard did not start because he's nursing a foot injury, but Lazio needed a spark, and Andreas Pereira, who started in his place, was really quite poor. Indeed, Alberto provided that spark only a few minutes after coming on. Lazio finally caught Spezia on the break, and it was Luis Alberto who started the attack. He played Correa across midfield, and Correa found Lazzari streaking down the right wing. Simone Bastoni simply could not keep up with the pace of the Italian international. Lazzari's first touch took him a bit wide, and it seems Zut had his angles covered, but somehow the ball got through, and Lazio were up 1-0. Spezia seemed to lose their shape after the goal, which played into Lazio's hands. Both Lazzari and Immobile had chances to catch Zut off his line, but neither of them took them. Mohamed Ferez also had a shot that he pulled wide of the mark and later in the match he would have a shot on target that Zut would stop. Vincenzo Italiano responded with a triple substitution including bringing on Verde which proved to be a wise move. Verde scored arguably the goal of the season with a ridiculous overhead kick off the bar and in. Simone Inzaghi was not to be outdone. Moments before the goal, Inzaghi replaced Sergei Milinkovic-Savic with John Daniel Akpro. Milinkovic-Savic was unusually quiet in this match. Inzaghi also replaced Immobile with Felipe Caicedo, which also proved to be a wise decision. Late in the match, VAR awarded Lazio a controversial penalty after a Lazio corner struck Ricardo Marquiza on the back of the arm. The defender had no idea where the ball was when it hit him, so in that sense, the decision was a bit harsh. Personally, I was actually fine with the call, whether he was aware of it or not. Marquiza's arm was still out, so to me, he still made his body unnaturally bigger. But what really made the decision harsh was about 10 minutes prior Francesco Acerbi handled the ball in a similar fashion. He slid to block Giassi's cross and the ball struck his arm, but the penalty was not given. In any event, Caicedo scored the penalty rather convincingly. That proved to be yet another game winner for the Ecuadorian. So Lazio eked out the win, but it did not come without a cost. Lazio had two players sent off deep into stoppage time. First, Lazzari picked up a straight red. Kevin Agudelo went through Lazzari with a very strong tackle, which led to a bit of a scrum on the pitch. Lazzari later retaliated with what appeared to be a headbutt on Agudelo, hence the red card. Then two minutes later, Correa made a late tackle, which earned him a second yellow. So Lazio will be forced to play their next match without two key players, and that match is against a pretty tough Hellas Verona side. So Inter have now extended their lead over Milan to 8 points, and depending on when you're listening to this, that lead could be 11 points if Inter beats Asuolo on Wednesday. 
Meanwhile, Milan's struggles in 2021 continue. They've now lost five and drawn two matches in 2021. And as a result, they are now at risk of dropping out of the top four. Atalanta have pulled within two points of Milan. With Juve drawing Torino, they remain four points back of Milan. And we've now pulled level with Juve on 56 points. Lazio have overtaken Roma in sixth place. They remain four points behind us, while Roma are now five points back of us in seventh. It goes without saying that our match against Juve on Wednesday is massive. We'll preview that match in part three. final part, we'll take a look ahead to our big game on Wednesday against Juventus. This is the makeup game from match day 3, which has already been postponed twice. First it was postponed after we won our appeal to Kony, and then it was postponed by mutual agreement after Juventus were eliminated from the Champions League. The way things have been going, I'm actually a little bit worried it could get moved again. I'm recording this segment on Tuesday morning, and as of right now, the match is still on. The director of the Torino ASL has said that at the moment, there is no need to move the match. Speculation has grown about whether the match will be played after Leonardo Bonucci and Mehdi Demerol contracted COVID while with their national teams. On Tuesday, Juve confirmed that Federico Bernardeschi also tested positive, and that was after Torino confirmed that they had a positive case. It's believed that Salvatore Sirigu is the player who tested positive, and of course, he was also with the national team. As I said in part 2, the Juve-Torino match finished as a 2-2 draw, which was the latest of disappointing results for the Bianconeri. Juve have dropped points in 4 of their last 8 Serie A matches, starting with their 1-0 defeat to us. They subsequently drew Hellas Verona, and they lost to Benevento immediately before drawing Torino. Meanwhile, we're enjoying our best run of form all season. We have 5 wins and a draw in our last 6. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Andrea Pirlo has played with different formations, but he typically uses a 4-4-2. Wojtek Szczesny should start in goal. With Bonucci out with COVID, Giorgio Chiellini and Matthias Delict will start at centre-back. Alexandro will likely start as the left-back and Juan Cuadrado will start as the right-back. The centre of the midfield is the most difficult to predict for me. Lately, the preferred pairing seems to be Rodrigo Bentancur and Adrian Rabiot. We've seen Pirlo use Danilo in the midfield as well, but that was also because of injuries. I'm expecting to see Artur with Rabiot, with Weston McKennie available to come off the bench. Federico Chiesa will start on the left wing, and with Bernardeschi testing positive as well, Dejan Kulusevski will have to start again on the right wing. Finally, Alvaro Morata and Cristiano Ronaldo will start up top. For Napoli, Gattuso will line up in the 4-2-3-1 once again. I think Alex Meret will get the starting goal. Ospina has just rejoined the group in training, and Meret was in goal for our win over Juve in February. 
Khalidou Koulibaly will be well-rested after serving his yellow card suspension during the Crotone match. Kostas Manolas really struggled in that match, but I think he'll fare much better in a pairing with Koulibaly. I think we'll see a well-rested Elcid Hisai start over Mario Rui at left-back. Kulusevski has pace on the Juve right wing, but he also has size, so I think it would make more sense to start Hisai. Meanwhile, Giovanni Di Lorenzo will start at right-back. Diego Deme returned to training on Monday and completed the full group training, so I think he'll start alongside Fabian Ruiz in the double pivot. If Deme is not fit to play, then Tiamoy Bakayoko will start in his place. Lorenzo Insigne will start on the left wing, and I think Chucky Lozano will get the start on the right wing over Matteo Politano. Had Lozano not been on a suspension, I think he probably would have started against Crotone. Also, even though Politano rested during the international break, Lozano will have had slightly more rest than Politano. For the same reason, I have Piotr Zielinski starting in the 10 spot over Dries Mertens. That's the most difficult position for me to predict. Both Mertens and Politano have started regularly during our run of form, so you don't want to mess with the lineup too much. Also, Mertens has scored free kicks in back-to-back games, so I can see Gattuso wanting him out there for that reason. Finally, I think Victor Osimhen will start at striker. So those were our starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match is we need to be the aggressor. We've played Juve twice so far this season, first in the Supercoppa Italiana and then in Serie A. Both times we played very defensively and allowed Juve to come at us, and our only goal between the two matches came from the penalty spot. Of course, we also missed from the spot in the Supercoppa. The performance in the Supercoppa was really disappointing. That was just before we started racking up the injuries. Other than Osimhen, who was out with COVID, we basically had a full squad. Mertens started on the bench because he had not fully recovered from his ankle injury. Even though he played against Hellas Verona after that, I think Mertens re-aggravated his ankle injury in that Supercoppa when he won the penalty. So we had the personnel, but I hated the approach. We were far too timid, and we didn't really start to play until we went behind. Even though we beat Juve in our Serie A match, I still didn't like the approach in that match either. We started well, but after we scored, we protected the lead for the balance of the match. Now, I'm a little more sympathetic to the approach in that match because we had a very short bench, so it made some sense to preserve our starters. Mertens, Deme, Hisai, Gulam, Koulibaly, and Manolas were all out for that match. I wouldn't say we got lucky like many Juventini said after that match because we defended really well and we played with a ton of heart in that match. That said, Juve had plenty of chances and the result easily could have been different. The tables have turned somewhat for this match. Juve will have the short bench with Bonucci, Bernardeschi and Demerol all positive for COVID. Juve went into that previous match in fine form having won 6 of their previous 7 matches. While we were in poor form, we had only won 2 of our previous 7 matches in all competitions. As I mentioned at the top, Juve are coming into this match in poor form while we're enjoying our best stretch of the season. We will have as close to a full squad as we've had all season, so we have to take it to Juve. We cannot be timid like we were in the previous 2 meetings, and we have way too much quality in this squad to not score from open play. And considering how the previous two meetings went, I think if we are the aggressor and control the run of play, we'll concede fewer chances simply because Juve will have less of the ball and therefore we're less likely to concede goals. In short, sometimes the best defense is a good offense. Our second key to the match is we need to press the ball. 
Lately, Juve have made costly mistakes when put under pressure. Against Lazio, Kulusevski played a pass back straight into the path of Jaukin Korea, who scored the opening goal in that match. Juve responded well in the second half, though, and they ended up winning that match 3-1. Then we saw Artur pass straight to Adolfo Geich, who scored the only goal in their match against Benevento. And as I mentioned in part 2, Kulusevski made the same mistake over the weekend against Torino. He passed back straight into the path of Antonio Sanabria, who scored a brace in their 2-2 draw. As big as this rivalry is, these two clubs actually have a lot in common this season. Both are led by relatively inexperienced managers. Obviously, Gattuso has a bit more experience than Pirlo does. Neither manager is a particularly good tactician. At least Gattuso is a good motivator and disciplinarian, though. Pirlo seems to be a little bit too casual. You have to wonder whether Weston McKinney would have hosted that dinner party under a coach like Antonio Conte or Max Allegri or even Maurizio Sarri. Finally, both of these clubs seem to hurt themselves more than their opponents do. For those reasons, I think if we pressure Juve on the ball, they're liable to make mistakes. Mind you, if I had to make three keys for Juve, it would also be to press us because like I said, we make similar mistakes. Our final key to the match is to take advantage of our pace on the right side. I could be wrong with my predicted 11, but if we start both Osiman and Lozano, we will have a ton of pace on the field. I suspect Juve will defend deep to protect against the long ball, but if they don't, we should look to play the ball over the top to Osiman and Lozano, particularly on the right wing. I think we have a significant advantage with Lozano and Osiman against Alexandro and Giorgio Chiellini especially. Insigne will have a tougher matchup against Juan Cuadrado on the other side, at least as far as pace goes, so I think we'll see a lot of the ball on our right wing and Juve's left wing. Giovanni Di Lorenzo will have his hands full with Federico Chiesa, who's arguably been Juve's best player this season outside of Ronaldo. The head official for this match is Maurizio Mariani. He's officiated 12 Napoli matches since 2018. Napoli have a record of 9 wins, 1 draw, and 2 losses in those matches. However, both of those losses were this season. After our 2-0 win over Parma, he was in charge for our 2-0 loss to Sassuolo and our 2-1 loss to Spezia. Mariani's assistants are Alberto Tagoni and Daniela Bindoni. The fourth official is Daniele Doveri and Alejandro Di Paolo is on the VAR assisted by Giorgio Peretti. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 3-1 Napoli win. I'll give our goals to Lorenzo Insigne, Victor Osimhen, and Piotr Zielinski, and I'll give the Juve goal to Cristiano Ronaldo. I know we haven't won all of the games that we should have won this season, but between missing players and poor form, the cards are certainly stacked in our favor. I saw a lot of people saying after the Crotone game that if we play that way against Juve, then we are going to lose to Juventus. Obviously, that performance against Crotona had a lot to do with Koulibaly not being in the squad, but it's also our MO to an extent. We tend to play to the level of our opponents, whether they're above us or below us in the table. I thought Juve might be motivated by the rumors that Pirlo's job depends on this result, but Pirlo's comments in his pre-match conference seem to suggest that this was not the case. He said that this match is important, not decisive. Now, he may have been just trying to take the pressure off of his players with that comment. Also, I think he was alluding to the fact that there are still 9 matches to play after this one. With how Milan have been dropping points lately, there are potentially 3 Champions League places up for grabs. He also mentioned his relationship with Andrea Agnelli, which suggests that his job is safe. 
the last thing that I'll say is as massive as a win would be, I don't think a draw would necessarily be a terrible result. That's only because we beat Juve in the first match, which means if we draw, we would own the tiebreak. The first tiebreaker is head-to-head record, so we would come out on top with a win and a draw. If we lose, it would depend on the score. The second tiebreaker is goal differential in the head-to-head matches, so if Juve beat us by two or more goals, they would then hold the tiebreaker, and if they beat us by one, we would go to the next tiebreaker, which is goal differential overall. As of right now, we have a goal differential of 31 goals, and Juve have a goal differential of 30 goals, so if we lose by one, they would have a slight advantage on overall goal differential. If we somehow tie on goal differential as well, then we would look to goals four, and then eventually there would be a random draw. We also own the tiebreaker on Atalanta and Roma, though Roma are slowly drifting out of contention for a Champions League spot. Milan own the tiebreaker over us based on a better head-to-head goal differential, and the tiebreak for Inter doesn't matter because we're not catching them anyways. We still have to play Lazio who beat us 2-0 in the previous meeting, so after this match, the Lazio match will be massive as well. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, we saw Milan drop points to Sampdoria and we saw Juve drop points to Torino, so we need to play every match like it's our last. That will do for this preview, I hope you enjoy the match. That will also do it for this episode, if you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and give us a 5 star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fortsanopoly Pod. We'll be back with another episode of Fortsanopoly Worldwide after this match, so keep an eye out for that. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Fortsanopoly sempre! Lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.